are you all this morning? It's good to be in the house of the Lord, and it's good to open God's Word with you. We're in the book of Revelation, so if you have your Bible, please open up to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 5. And as Stephen said, this is the, the last message in our series we've been going through since April. started with Zechariah chapter 4, and we've been working through this series titled The Movement of the Spirit of God. And today we're looking at the, the last message in that series. And when Will was giving us, as, as pastors, we've had the privilege of standing in this pulpit and preaching, and he was giving us our assignments, told me I'd be doing the, the one this week, and it'd be the last one. And I said, that's awesome, I'm so excited. And he goes, it's the book of Revelation. I said, thank you. And I was thinking, I hope he doesn't mean the whole book. But we are in chapter 5, and what he meant was a passage out of it. I, I, I began reading through Revelation, and when I got to chapter 5, it was very clear this is where we're supposed to be. What was clear is that every message we had been preaching in the movement of the Spirit of God has been leading us to this glorious chapter in Revelation chapter 5. And I believe it's where we are headed as the people of God. We together corporately are, are heading to Revelation chapter 5. And so it's a great privilege we get to open this book. And what we see in it and throughout Revelation is the, the absolute worthiness of Christ compared to the unworthiness of everything else. He alone is worthy of our worship. Amen? You see, I believe we are made to worship God. I hope you do too. Because it's very clear as you, as you go throughout Scripture. In fact, in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we have two words that in your Bible are translated to, to work and keep. What it says is God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to work and keep the garden. But in the Hebrew, you can actually translate those two words, worship and obey. And so we're, we're created and placed in the garden to worship God and to obey God. And you don't have to go far in the book of Genesis and you see something goes terribly wrong with that worship. What happens is sin enters the picture and enters man. And our ability to rightly worship God is broken. What happens is our, our worship is diverted and, and we no longer worship God. We begin worshiping idols. When, Today, we do the same. We worship our jobs. We worship pleasure or relationships. We worship our money or possessions. You see, our hearts just constantly churn out idols. And so to fix this, this major worship problem, Jesus came. And he took on flesh and he lived a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, to redeem us. And it's very clear in Scripture that Jesus accomplished all the work that the Father gave him to do. So that in Christ we can now rightly worship God again just as we were created to do. To worship and obey. And so here's a question. I just want to, before we read the Scripture, I want to present this question before us this morning. And it's this. Who do you worship? Who do you worship? Who do you ascribe glory and, and praise to? Our, our text is very clear. We're going to see there is only one who is worthy. And he is God. 
And so let's read this great chapter, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. You follow along in your Bible. And this is a continuation from chapter 4. We, we don't have the time to, to include both chapters, but uh, we will fill in chapter 4 as we move along. But look at chapter 5, verse 1. John has been caught up into heaven, into this heavenly vision, and here's what he tells us. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns, and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a glorious chapter we get to, to look at today in God's Word. And I want us to see four things in this chapter as it relates to the worthiness of the Lamb and our worship to God. So here's the first thing we see. We see God has a redemptive plan for history. God has a redemptive plan for history. And we, we see this throughout these first four verses. It's, it's a plan that, that's going to display his glory. And it's a plan that includes salvation and judgment. 
You see, chapter 5 begins as a continuation from chapter 4. God is seated on the throne. And the throne is central to heaven. It's central. It's right in the center. And notice, this is the first thing John sees when he's swept into heaven. He sees the throne of God. I believe it's the first thing we're going to see when we get to heaven. We're going to see the throne of God. And I don't have time to go back and and read through chapter 4, but tomorrow's daily devotional, uh, the the scripture messages that we send out that's on our church app and Facebook, it's going to be Revelation chapter 4. So I invite you to participate with us in that daily reading. And you can find that in the church app or on Facebook. But just to recapture for what happens in that chapter is we see John sees the image of the one sitting on the throne and it is glorious to behold. And at the same time, it can be a little frightening, right? It's a majestic image. There, there are creatures, there are elders. We, we know there are angels who are worshiping God as he sits on the throne, which is where he is today. And in our chapter 5, verse 1, John tells us he sees something in the hand of him who was seated on the throne, and that is a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now there's some disagreement among scholars at what the scroll is, what it represents. But if we were to read through Revelation, continuing into chapter 6 and 7 and 8, what we'd see is that when the seals are broken... This scroll includes God's redemptive plan for humanity, including his judgments. It is in many ways a book of redemption. And it includes salvation and judgment, much like the scroll in Ezekiel chapter 3. And I find it interesting that this image of a scroll has writing on both sides. That was unusual in this time. You normally only wrote on one side. Papyrus was... Was, was, was such that, that only the inside was suitable for writing. The outside, the grains went in different directions. It was a little bit more difficult. But there's so much to be said here. There's writing on both sides. And it's sealed with seven seals. Which interestingly is similar to, to what a Roman will would have been. They had seven seals sealed from seven witnesses. A last will and testament. But there's seven seals on this scroll. And so what is meant by a seal? Well, a seal, you know, I I said this earlier. If I were to ask my children to to write a letter and seal the envelope, they would look at me like they had no idea what I'm talking about. But to seal an envelope is to lick it and close it. Well, to seal a document in this time, a scroll, would have been to to take a dollop of wax and and when you roll the scroll up, Where the papyrus overlaps, you would place that that hot wax to seal that document. And you would take your ring or insignia and you would press it into the wax while it is hot. And what that did is that told who this document was coming from. And ultimately what it did was give you the authority of whose words were contained within it. It was a guarantee that the inside of the document were the words of the one who sealed it. There's authority in a seal. And what it means for someone to open the seals is that person has to have the authority to execute the words that are within. 
So the scroll needs to be opened only by someone who has the authority to carry out its orders. And that is the problem that we're presented at the beginning of Revelation chapter 5. And in verse 2, a mighty angel steps up and proclaims with a loud voice. This, This loud voice is not just asking those who are in the room, but he is searching the whole universe, asking this question, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? Who is worthy? And John tells us in verse 3 that there was nobody found worthy. There was nobody found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was able to open the scroll and look in it. Now this word able is not a matter of sheer will. There was no invitation for everyone to line up and and get a crack at trying to pull the scroll out out of the Father's hand. No, this able is a word that means nobody is qualified. Nobody was ethically able. Nobody was was qualified. Nobody had the ethical right to step up and try because nobody, alive or dead, no angels, no elders, not the prophets, not Joshua, not Moses, not David, not Elijah, nobody was worthy meaning ethically qualified to take the scroll and to break its seals. And in verse 4, John says, I began to weep loudly. It's a strong verb. What he's saying is he's not merely fighting back tears, but he has burst into tears. He's wailing out of a deep and sorrowful agony. Why? Because if, if the seals are not broken, then God's redemptive plan would not be fulfilled. God's blessing upon the people of God and their final deliverance would not take place. And God's righteous judgments against sin and and, and his enemies and the evil world would not happen. You see, John knows that if there is no one who can take the scroll and break the seals and and carry out God's redemptive plan, then we are hopeless. You see the tension in this vision so far. I mean, praise God that it doesn't end here, amen? These verses, there's there's tension in this scene. And before moving to the second point, I want to give us some application. At the end of each point, I'm just going to give us a couple questions to, to consider And the application for this point is this. Do you rest in the sovereign plan of God? And what I mean is this. Do you rest, do you and I rest in the fact that God is on the throne? To rest means that we have peace in our hearts even when everything around us is in chaos. Do we rest in God's plan his perfect plan of salvation through judgment, that it has been carried out by Christ on the cross. You see, our judgment was placed on him at Calvary. And do you rest in the fact that we are headed for that final consummation when all things, Scripture tells us, will be made new? Do you rest in God's sovereignty? Or are you more comfortable 
living life with you on the throne. Because I can tell you, friend, there's, if that's the life you're living, it only ends in judgment. Here's the second point in our text. It is this. Our hope, our hope is in the lamb that was slain. Our hope is in the lamb that was slain. We see this in verses 5 through 7. He's our redeemer. In fact, he's our kinsman redeemer, as, as the book of Ruth points us towards. Pastor Will gave that message in our series. And here we see clearly two images. He is the Lion of Judah that's been promised in Genesis 49. If you were to go back to Genesis 49, what you would see is Jacob, Israel, is blessing his sons. And Judah is said to be a lion's cub who the people will praise. And he will crush his enemies. And he will have an eternal kingdom. See, the promise of the Messiah would come through this line. And we also see here he is the root of David. That's a, that's a phrase that should point us to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. That he's the root, he's the shoot from Jesse that bears fruit. Jesus would save himself in Revelation twenty two sixteen. He would say, I am the root and the descendant of David. You see, Jesus alone is worthy. He's worthy to carry out and execute God's redemptive plan. And these beautiful verses testify to that. And so in verse 5, one of the elders tells John to stop crying. And he says, behold, which means look. He says, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He has overcome. The Greek word, or the Greek root of this word conquer is, is where we get the word Nike from. The winged victory. Right? He is victorious already. He has already conquered. And so the question is, when did he conquer? Friends, he conquered at Calvary when he conquered sin. And he conquered when he burst from the tomb, conquering death for you and I. And the elder says, look, the lion. But when John looks, what does he see? He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You say, what is this, Billy? Is this, is this a picture of a lion? Is there also a lamb standing there? I want you to listen carefully because what John is telling us is a great truth throughout Scripture, and it is this, that the lion is the lamb. The lion is the lamb. Jesus is a lion-like lamb, and he is a lamb-like lion. The victory that he achieves as a lion is, is achieved through the sacrifice and suffering of the lamb. And upon this side, I believe John's mind would immediately have gone to Exodus chapter 12, which is that great text where God gives the Passover instructions to his children. You see, in Exodus 12, the Passover instructions are given and necessary because the people of God needed atonement for their sins. And they didn't just need it once. It's not like when we become a Christian, we are forgiven once and forever. But they needed atonement continually. And so God graciously gave them these Passover instructions. And this was a time where, where God instructed families in that text, in Exodus 12, to go and get a young lamb. He says, very specific instructions, a year old. And this lamb is to be unblemished. It is to be pure. 
And the instructions are that you go and get this lamb on the tenth day, and for four days you take this lamb into your home, and you live with it. I've not given much thought until this week, but I would imagine these four days there would be a tenderness and a bond that would grow between that family and that lamb. And then God says on the 14th day, you're to sacrifice the lamb, you're to kill it. You're to slit his throat and you're to take the blood and place it on the doorpost of your house. And the angel that night would pass by sparing those who had the blood of the lamb on their doors. Don't miss this. The unblemished substitute died in their place. And the Passover is about God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, his deliverance of his people from slavery. And here, standing before John in the throne room, was the lamb who was slain to deliver his people from their sin. To be slain is a a strong word. It means violently slain. It's, It's what Jesus went through at the crucifixion. And yet John sees this lamb standing. He's standing. And John says he had seven horns which symbolize his, his, his perfect or absolute power. The word seven is, is a word used through Scripture to indicate perfection. And he had seven eyes, symbolizing his perfect or, or absolute omniscience, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. And we don't have time to dig into Zechariah 3 and 4, but these words very closely are connected to the vision that we see in Zechariah 4 where we started this series and what we see is that God's spirit is at work bringing all this about for you and I and in chapter 5 verse 7 it tells us that the lamb came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne what a scene That great preacher W.A. Criswell said this about this verse. He said, when the lamb took the scroll, he said that is the greatest act in all of the story of God's creation. That is the greatest act in the apocalypse. And that is the greatest act in the history of mankind. And he came and he took the book. Took the scroll. Who is worthy? The lamb is worthy. And notice where the lamb is when John sees him. He is standing in the middle of the room. He's not coming from the back. He's not coming in the side door. But he is there in the middle of the room where the throne is. He is between the throne and the four living creatures. And according to chapter 4, the placement of the four living creatures, they they are closest to the throne. One on each side of the throne. And yet Jesus is closer. He's central to the throne. And Jesus tells us he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And there he is. And it is very clear to us, as John shows us, that there is absolutely no doubt in heaven or on earth who the slain lamb, who the slain lamb is. For he is God. And he is worthy of our worship. And so the application for this point are just two simple questions. Who is your hope in? Who is your hope in? Is it solely in Jesus? Is it in Jesus? 
You see, John was weeping when no one was found worthy, and that is because we are hopeless without Jesus. So the question is, is your hope in Jesus? He's the only one who can fulfill God's plan of redemption for you and I. And so John continues this vision by telling us all that the Lamb accomplished, and it's this. Third point, we have been ransomed for God's purpose and for God's glory. See, here's why we've been rescued. Here's why we've been ransomed, for God's purpose and for God's glory. And we see this in verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, immediately when the Lamb took the scroll, we see the four living creatures and the elders fell down before the Lamb holding a harp, which if you go through Scripture, you'll see a harp as an instrument of of jubilation and praise. And they're worshiping him. And it says they had golden bowls full of incense, which we are told are the prayers of the saints. Church, don't miss this. Because you are the saints. And what John is telling us is the prayers of the saints are as incense in heaven. I don't know if you like incense. I had a college roommate that ruined it for me. He just burned it all the time. But it's meant to have a pleasing or sweet aroma. And what John is telling us is that the prayers that we pray here on earth are a sweet aroma in heaven before the Lamb. Stop and think about that. All the prayers, the the, the prayers for healing, the prayers for salvation, the prayers for for justice and God's righteousness, the prayers for revival, every one of our prayers end up in the same place, at the throne of God and at the feet of the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy. Please don't be discouraged in our prayer life. God hears our cries. He hears our prayers And this verse tells us they are part of this great worship in Revelation 5 of the Lamb who is worthy. And verse 9 tells us they sang a new song, which is appropriate because this is a book of of new things, right? New birth, new Jerusalem, and here a new song. And in Scripture, when we see a new song, it is always tied to God's rescuing of His people, bringing about a salvation through judgment. We see it in Exodus 15. You can go back and look at that on your own. But Moses sings this song in Isaiah 42.10 and Psalm 96 verses 1-4 through 4, all speak about a new song. And here's what they sing in our chapter. They sing, By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, this is why we go. In the last service, we commissioned Jared, who's going on mission overseas. And it is because God is in the business of ransoming people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. And here's why he ransomed us. Here's why he makes us into a kingdom of priests. And don't miss these two words, because it's very clearly in our verses here. He did this for God. He did it for God. You see, our salvation is not primarily for us. We operate sometimes like it is. Right? Like, it's all about us. We think that we're saved just so we can go to heaven, which is 
certainly praiseworthy in our hearts. But if we look at Scripture in these verses, we see very clearly that the Scripture shows us that our salvation is first and foremost for who? For God. He ransomed people for God. And he made them into a kingdom of priests to our God. This is why they sing this song. They're singing about God. And if we were to flip to Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, we would read these glorious words. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. What a beautiful picture of who God made us for and who he saves us for. And that is his glory. So what's the application? The application is very clear here. The question before us is this. Who do you live your life for? Who are you living your life for? Is it for God? Or do you live for yourself? If you're a Christian, you were redeemed for God. So not only is your hope and your identity in Him, but your purpose is also in Him. He has a plan for you. That you would live for Him. So may we live for his glory. And that brings us to our fourth point. And in this fourth point, we see the the result of the Lamb's victory. Chapter 4 was clear in showing us that there's praise and worship to the one on the throne. And so far in chapter 5, when the Lamb took the scroll, there's praise and worship to the Lamb who was slain. But here we see this final great truth in our chapter. And it's this. All creation will worship and praise the Father and the Son together. All creation will worship and praise the Father and the Son together. We see that in verses 11 through 14. And we know that that God is one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And all the, the Holy Trinity is at work here and present here. And what we see in these verses is that all creation in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, worships and praises the Father and the Son together. I mean, just imagine this scene. All creation means every animal, every, every bird, every bird's going to be singing. Every animal's going to be praising God, joining in with the myriads and myriads of angels. Now that number means myriads times myriads. It, it's, it's an innumerable number, John is saying. There's millions of angels gathered praising God. And all creation comes to this moment in time and is headed to this moment in time where in verse 13 it says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever and ever. We could keep saying that. And then the four living creatures that are closest to the throne, said amen. And it says the elders fell down and worshipped. What a a scene. What a beautiful picture of the worship of God. And notice how this chapter ends. There's, There's no distinction given in worship between the one on the throne and the lamb that was slain. Now there's no doubt that the lamb is God. He is God the Son. 
And what we see here is the one on the throne is worthy. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy as sovereign creator. And the lamb is worthy as our kinsman redeemer. And all creation falls down and worships God. What a, what a chapter. Right? Think about where this chapter started. Earlier, there was no one in the universe worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. But now he is worthy. The lamb that was slain in all creation worships God. It's a perfect picture of what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. I want to read that for us in closing. It's a great picture here of what we see in Revelation chapter 5. Paul is talking about Christ. And he says this in verse 8 of Philippians 2. He says, In being found in human form, right, speaking of Christ, taking on flesh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me pause and ask this question. Who, who is he obedient to? To the Father. And verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a beautiful picture of what we see here in Revelation 5. You see, it's all about the glory of the Father. And the God the Father's will is very clearly in Scripture that the Son be exalted. That He be exalted. And the Father is glorified in the exaltation of the Son. And as the Son is exalted, the Father is lifted up. And so we see this perfect worship, really the, the perfection of praise right here in Revelation chapter 5. And so here's our application. The question that we must consider, and it's one that I've wrestled with this week, because I believe that our coming together as a church, and I want you to hear me, church family, our coming together each Sunday to worship and to sing praises and to open God's word and to pray and to come together is in many ways a dress rehearsal for what we see right here in Revelation chapter 5 in the book of Revelation. And so the question is this. Why do many of us struggle when we come in this sanctuary to worship God with our whole heart? Why do we, why do we struggle to give him our whole heart? And I think one of the answers, if we're, we're being perfectly honest, is this, that Many of us disconnect worship to be something that we only do when we're at church rather than what we do 24-7 as a kingdom of priests who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You see, the Revelation 5 isn't just a dress rehearsal. We are, we are His people now. And we are filled with His Spirit now. And we are to worship Him now. If you're to go to to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul would be very clear about that. You offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You see, your whole life is to be lived as an act of worship to God. Not just Sunday mornings, but seven days a week. And I'm afraid for some of us that, that Sunday is the only time we pray 
It's the only time we sing praises to God. It's the only time some of us read our Bibles. And so it's hard to come in here if that's the only time. If we're not living a life of worship 24-7, it's hard to come in here and it's a struggle with our flesh. And I get that. There's, there's distractions in life that are pulling at us. Some of us woke up this morning with distractions that almost kept us from coming in here to worship God. And maybe all through this message you're just thinking about what awaits you tomorrow in the office. I get it. We have this limitation called our flesh, but I want you to take heart because Revelation chapter 5 is a word for us to be strengthened to worship God with all that we are because he is worthy and he deserves our whole heart. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know we, we have his book. We know how it all ends. And his word is trustworthy and it is true. Jesus is victorious. God is on the throne. And we are his redeemed. A people forgiven and ransomed. We've been ransomed. We've been rescued by the blood of the Lamb. And so I just want to challenge, end with this challenge. May, may we challenge each other to come together each week to worship with anticipation Looking unto that great day, that day when, when we'll be relieved from this flesh that holds us down. This flesh that is always, always fighting against the Spirit, warring against the Spirit, we'll be relieved from it on that day, and we, along with all creation, will fall down, and we will cast our crowns, and we will worship the one who is worthy. Because he is worthy, amen? Let's bow our heads in, in, in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, just with grateful hearts. To be able to open your word and, Lord, we're grateful for the vision you gave John to see the, the glories of heaven. And Lord, even in these words, we know they cannot contain all that we will experience when we get there. But what we know, Lord, is that you sent the Son to give his life as a sacrifice for us. That we might be a kingdom of priests who worship you forever and ever. Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you that Jesus fulfilled your will. And so, Lord, now as your children, may we worship you. Lord, free us from the distractions of life. Help us to walk in holiness. And Father, I pray if anyone in this room today does not know you, does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that through this message they would see the beauty of all that Christ accomplished for them and that they would today put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, you are mighty to save. And you are ransoming a people from every, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And you, Lord, are drawing us together where we will live and reign forever with Christ. And so, Father, let us be in all of this worship. Let us praise your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.